and welcome to the first episode of the second season of Victorian Samplings. I'm Vanessa Warren. We launch our second season with three conversations about paper objects in motion. Jesse Cron asks Patrick Leary what Victorians were reading in railway carriages. Anne Hung speaks with Catherine Golden about penny black stamps and the movement of letters by mail. And we welcome a new team member, Natalie Lovetri, who shares a conversation with Meredith Bach about paper toys, their moving parts, and the children they entertained. Season two starts now, and we're very glad to have you along for the ride. Hello, Victorian samplers. I'm Jesse Cron. I'm speaking today with Patrick Leary, a former president of the Research Society for Victorian Periodicals and the author of The Punch Brotherhood, Table Talk and Print Culture in Mid-Victorian London. In line with this episode's theme of paper in motion, Patrick and I are discussing the comic Bradshaw, a pocket-sized publication which became a convenient way to pass the time for 19th century train commuters. Patrick, can you tell us about the comic? This is the comic Bradshaw, and it has a subtitle. It's the comic Bradshaw or Bubbles from the Boiler. <laughs> and it's this little comic pamphlet. It's about four inches by five inches, so it fits easily in a pocket. Uh, and it's got a... Um, uh, a color cover, two colors, green and and uh, and red. I think it's interesting, by the way, that so this is 1848. the The railway bubble of all these investors putting money into all these railway lines had burst in 1846. So bubbles from the boiler has an additional resonance to people who are traveling on railways, many of whom probably lost some money in this uh, in this thing. And uh, it's, all, it's a comic exploration of the miseries of railway travel. It is uh, designed to make people laugh about uh, railway travel. It is illustrated by H.G. Hine, Henry George Hine, who was very involved in comic illustration in the 1840s. He, he, he drew for Punch and he drew for... All, uh, illustrated London News and all kinds of things. Later on, he became this very respectable landscape painter. But back in the 40s, as a young man, he was doing all this um, all this comic illustration. It's published by, um, and it says on the cover, D. Bogue, 86 Fleet Street. That's uh, David Bogue. And David Bogue is very much associated with this particular genre, by which I mean uh, the small, pocket-sized, illustrated comic brochures. Uh, this one is sixpence. Some of them were as much as a shilling, uh, but they were aimed at a, a, at a big audience. Uh, and they are particularly associated with the 1840s. Uh, this whole genre is really an 1840s thing. Uh, by the early mid fifties, it's kind of run its course, but it's fascinating, and I don't think anybody's really examined it or written about it. Uh, but it 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 touches on a lot of different things that are going on in British culture and in uh, publishing, and so on. Uh, the author of this, 
compendium of comicalities is a guy named Angus B. Reock. Now, it, people have often seen his name, and they think, understandably, that his name is Reach, R-E-A-C-H, because that's how it's spelled. But uh, Angus was very particular about pronouncing it Reoc, and so he spent his life correcting people about the pronunciation. He came from Inverness, and this was a Highland pronunciation. Reoc, I can't really give it the, the, true, <laughs> the true Scottish uh, uh, intonation. Uh, he, came to, he came from Inverness as a young man. He had written for the Inverness Courier and sort of gotten his chops as a very young man at, at that newspaper. Um, and he came to London and he got work for the Morning Chronicle, uh, which, you know, Dickens and other people had worked for. And he wound up working for the Morning Chronicle the rest of his short life, but he also did uh, comic journalism. And David Bogue was a friend of his, and he uh, he did a number of these pamphlets. If you look at this uh, you'll see inside that it's got a number of funny drawings by Hein, and it's got various funny texts by uh, by Riach. It, what, what it is is a selection of middle-class types uh, in this environment. Now, railways were still fairly novel. You know, they, they get going in the 1830s. Uh, there's a huge boom in railway construction all over England, and people are investing in various lines, and it's a huge thing. So railways were a huge object of fascination. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it made sense to have a, a sort of comic spoof of them. By 1848, these are uh, railway travel is pretty common. Uh, people are, you know, get, getting accustomed to it, very accustomed to it. But it's still novel enough that it's sort of funny, it's sort of interesting to think about. Uh, if you, when you open this up, you, you, the first thing you see is a conductor coming along to a railway carriage asking for, for copies of Bubbles from the Boilers. In, instead, of, instead of tickets, he's saying, Bubbles, get your Bubbles, please. Need to see your Bubbles. And you see, you see copies of Bubbles from the Boiler all over the carriage, right? Yeah. So this is part of the joke of this of this pamphlet is that you're probably at the railway station bookstall and you are buying uh, a copy of something that's about the experience you're about to have, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's very meta in this way, and that's part of the joke. Uh, and in fact, when this uh, came out, David Bogue ran his ads in the newspapers, and they and they and they said. The publisher begs to announce that persons who travel on railways, or otherwise, without a comic Bradshaw, must do so at their own peril. Bradshaw was the railway timetable that everybody had to have, right? Uh, so, you know, and it was also priced at sixpence, and it was also about this size. And you read about Bradshaw in all these Victorian novels and Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, Dr. Watson is checking the Bradshaw to see when the next... The, the next train is and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, but there's all these jokes in here, uh, and a lot of the jokes are kind of lame by our standards. Why is a policeman like a locomotive? Because he takes people to the station. Okay. <laughs> so there's, you know, Victorians loved that kind of joke. They loved it. Uh, but there's also just a lot of funny things about the kinds of people that you're going to meet on the railway, and you might be one of those people. Um, 
but it will have, you know, what it's like to be in a carriage with somebody who's really boring, you know, and they insist on talking to you. Yeah. A painful experience. Painful experience, but funny. Uh, there is a, there's a wonderful image by, by Hine in here, a drawing, that is a series of, this, of expressions on this man's face. And these are, the caption explains, these are the changing expressions at different points along the journey of somebody who's in a second-class carriage sitting on a really hard wooden seat. You know, second class, you didn't get the padded seats. You had the hard wooden bench. So this is part of a larger genre of railway literature. Uh, because, you know, stagecoaches, you couldn't really read on them. They were just too bumpy. But once railways come in, you, you can start reading. Uh, and so this whole industry uh, uh, grows up uh, of uh, magazines and newspapers and books that are specifically for taking with you on on the railway. Also to keep you busy so that the bore in the same uh, carriage will not talk to you because you're busy reading your book or whatever. Uh, and so David Bogue is taking advantage of this like a lot of publishers and, and did. It's also part of a comic tradition. The 1840s, as you may know, saw this fabulous flowering of comic journalism. And I'm, th I'm talking about illustrated comic journalism. There had been plenty of comic illustration in the 1820s and 1830s, but a lot of that were standalone caricatures. The great thing about wood engraving, which really comes in in a big way in the 30s and 40s, is uh, you could include text with, with the pictures. Suddenly, you could just do these little b blocks of illustrations and put them in, in the printing press alongside the text. So suddenly, you're having a huge um, uh, boom in illustration. And the classic case in, in, in this genre is Punch, which comes out in 1841, right? And then the following year, 1842, Illustrated London News comes out. And suddenly, everybody wants to do a newspaper with pictures. Uh, this little brochure, humble as it is, is part of that. And it's interesting to me that it's connected to other kinds of journalism. Everybody knows about Henry Mayhew, for example, uh, doing his London Labor and the London Poor series, where he goes out and he interviews uh, all these people. Uh, and uh, uh, and it's and it's fascinating, it, and it was a study of the the laboring poor. Well, this uh, the, these this the initial series of investigations that he did was for the Morning Chronicle. The Morning Chronicle had a team of people going out and interviewing people and investigating the circumstances of uh, laboring poor all over England. Well, Angus B. Reock was part of this team. Uh, the Morning Chronicle sent him out to York, Yorkshire and Lancashire to the textile uh, and manufacturing districts to talk to uh, talk to, to laborers in both of those industries. So there's this very important stream of social investigative journalism that happens. Mm. And what's interesting to me is that it's happening, some of the same people doing that, are also writing comic burlesques and the comic Bradshaw and stuff for Punch. So there's a connection, and I think the connection is basically that they are both different modes of analysis of society. There's a comic mode, 
and there's a serious social mode, but both of them are looking at particular types uh, in society and trying to understand them as types. It seems that there was an anxiety about the railway becoming a feature of society. At the same time, there were a number of people who were invested in the train becoming a normal part of the infrastructure system. Do you think the comic Bradshaw is straddling the line between these two groups? Like, is it sympathizing with them, pointing out their absurdities? Because it seems to me that it's satirizing its readership. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's a, it's a, it's a gentle kind of fun that it's poking. And I think Angus Riach is a, is a master of this. He, there's nothing mean-spirited about uh, his depictions of people. So that you could say, yeah, that really is... I'm a second-class passenger, and that really is how I feel by about, you know, mile 70 on this my journey. But I think you're absolutely right that there is an ambivalence about railways because they have been so incredibly disruptive. Just putting them in has—they've gone across people's property. They've, they've torn up people's neighborhoods. You know, they've done all kinds of all kinds of things. Uh, and a lot of people were very upset about it for a long time and remained upset about it. At the same time, it was exciting. It was exciting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, suddenly you were able to go places you couldn't go and you could visit family you couldn't visit before. Uh, but it also meant that you were suddenly surrounded by people you didn't know. I mean, most mm-hmm. people in the 19th century did not spend a lot of time around people they didn't know, around total strangers. Now, suddenly you're in a confined space. Uh, you know, I just got back from a trip after two years of lockdown in which I was on a plane with all these people I didn't know. Uh, and it yeah. felt really strange. You know, yeah. it felt really mind bending, quite apart <laughs> from whatever risk there might have been. And yeah. it made me think anew about what the Victorian experience was like. And it's anxiety producing. And one of the things that you get when you get anxiety is comedy. Because mm-hmm. comedy plays on that. And it also, it's also calming in a way because it says, oh, you know, sure, that person you saw, there are a lot of people like that. It's a particular type, you know, the bore. Okay. Other people have had this experience. Other people have been, have been nonplussed by encountering this kind of stranger on a train, you know, or this kind of experience on a train. So in that way, it's kind of, it's kind of soothing. One of the reviews says in the in the newspapers of comic of the comic uh, Bradshaw says uh, this will help make uh, your journey go faster, uh, and I think that was the idea. You'd have a little something that would be gently satirizing your experience, and uh, and uh, and you'd feel a little better when you when you got to the end. It's amazing that any of these survived, by the way, because they were totally ephemeral productions you know you would get you'd buy it at the station you'd probably throw it away when you got done with your journey you know or leave it in the carriage i'm seeing some continuities between the media landscape of the 21st century and that of the 19th century in the 21st century there is some worry that people who engage with ephemera on our phones for instance are damaging our attention spans and our ability to engage with long-form texts were commentators nervous about this signaling a proliferation of different forms of reading in the 19th century? I think there is definitely a strain of concern about the effect that uh, 
periodicals and newspapers particularly are having on people's ability to concentrate for long periods. There are absolutely people who say, well, this this periodical literature today, uh, people are just, their attention is so fragmented, um, you know, and it's just doing terrible things to us. And there is also this concern about a fragmented attention gets worse later in the century when you actually have newspapers with titles like tidbits, you know, <laughs> and a lot of cultural critics are saying, oh, man, this is the end, you know, when, <laughs> when all people can stand to read are tiny little fragments of text, you know. But it's actually true earlier in the century, and you pick up any Victorian newspaper, there's all kinds of little things, you know. The, the paragraph was the unit of consumption, and those paragraphs were often very small. Uh, so you'd read a column uh, in a typical newspaper um, uh, that would that would say, you know, gossip of the clubs or, you know, what's happening in literature or something like that or, you know, business jottings or something. And, you know, every little thing, every little piece of news was just like two, three lines long. So there was a lot of this going on, and I think there was some anxiety. In general, I am a little worried about i have anxiety uh about about arguments from anxiety mm-hmm. uh, it, you know it is very easy to project all this anxiety and use it as a causal mechanism well this happened because the victorians were anxious about this or anxious about that um that doesn't mean that a lot of Victorians weren't anxious about different things because anxiety is part of the human condition. Uh, and there was a lot of change going on and ang- and, and changes uh, anxiety producing. But I don't think it, I don't think it's a good way of explaining things that they said or did usually mm-hmm. uh, in part because it was very selective, you know um, yeah, there were people who felt that way about uh, periodicals. There are other people who felt that these were great, you know, yeah. Um, you know, and that they were it, it was liberating uh from uh from, you know, other kinds of other kinds of dull repetitive study. I'm also wondering about the production process for the comic. Um by that I mean who made the paper, who added the green and red onto the cover. Is there anything you can say about that? I absolutely can, and I am so I am so glad you asked that question. Um when we talk about literary life, uh, we are long past the period when we should be talking about just people who wrote things. We should be talking about compositors and paper makers and, you know, print shop managers and engravers and all these other people involved in these systems of production. So this gives me a chance to mention, for example, uh, the Dalziel brothers, who did the engraving of Heinz uh, drawings for this. Uh, the Dalziels were a fascinating firm, uh, and they were very uh, active and did wonderful work. They worked; they had worked for and still worked for The Man in the Moon, among other things, and for Punch, uh, although they didn't do most of the Punch work. But they did lots of other things, and they are... Um, uh, they're very much associated today with John Tenniel's drawings for Alice in Wonderland. Uh, they did all the all the engraving of the woodblocks for those. And uh, not that many years ago, in a box 
in a bank's safe. Uh, it was retrieved and they opened it and it had all these original wood blocks that had been engraved by the Dalziel brothers oh, wow. of Tenniel's illustrations for, oh my gosh. I know it's fascinating. Uh, Michael Hancher, I got to mention Michael Hancher, who has uh, written the definitive account of uh, the illustrations for um, uh, Alice in Wonderland. And he's wonderful on these kinds of issues about what was involved in creating a, uh, say you wanted to reprint a bunch of of comic Bradshaws, which I don't think they did, but suppose you did. Well, you'd want to make a basically a a a, 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 a paper mache plaster of Paris kind of stereotype, as it was known, a mold, and then you would then you would fill you know you would use metal molten metal to create a whole set of type, and then you would have these metal plates, these big metal plates. Um, and you would store those and you would use those to reprint things. And the coloring, we don't know as much as we'd like to know about the coloring of things like this. A lot of them didn't have any color, but this had color. And uh, Punch put out a set of um, uh, books that they put out every Christmas that were gift books that were that were like, I forget, what, what do they call them? Anyway, they were, uh, uh, they were like diaries, you know, um, uh, that you would buy for, that you would put your appointments in. You know, they had the calendar in them. Uh, and they also had all these engravings and stuff. And they had color, a color fold-out illustration by John Leach at the beginning. And um, uh, they and Bradbury and Evans, who published those, hired women. There were a bunch of women that they hired to sit in a room, and, you know, with paint pots and meticulously color all of these, all of these things, you know. Mm -hmm. So there was a, there's a lot of hidden labor uh, mm -hmm. in this uh, that's really fascinating to learn about. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of this. I, I am a, I'm currently reading and rereading a bunch of reminiscences by a man who was a compositor, mm -hmm. uh, and then who later became an editor. But he's uh, his reminiscences. Uh, are fascinating because they're all about what's happening on the composing room floor when Douglas Gerald or somebody like that comes down and uh, sets up his own. Now, Gerald had been a compositor. You may not know his name. Douglas Gerald was a was a a, a very well known um, uh, comic writer and and satirist, and he wrote a lot of plays and things like that for Punch and others and. Uh, but he he was a working class guy, and he'd come up as a compositor. And he would, when he was writing a book, he would go down and he'd set up some of his own stuff in type. He'd just sort of shoulder aside the compositor there who was sitting there doing his thing and say, "Well, I can set this up." Or they would come down. Others would come down and talk to the compositors and and, and help them figure out their the handwriting. You know, because a lot of these people had terrible, terrible handwriting. <laughs> And the compositors are going crazy down there. So they'd, you know, one of these authors would come down and smoke a cigar and say, and they'd say, well, what about this for you? So, oh, well, that's this, you know, and they'd, uh, they'd, they'd work their way through it. There's a lot of fascinating stuff going on in the production and a lot of conversation. I mean, one of the, the, the main point of my book on Punch is that there's a lot of talk that's part of this production process. Mm -hmm. It happens among compositors. It happens among authors and illustrators. It happens between all these and among all these people. That talk is all vanished now, of course, because like a lot of these productions, it's ephemeral. 
Uh, but there are traces of it, and I think it's something that we, when we're trying to understand these production processes, we need to be alert to evidences of those things. Thank you so much to Patrick Leary for that fascinating talk. For more information on comics journalism and Patrick's book, The Punch Brotherhood, please visit the podcast section of the Crafting Communities website at craftingcommunities.net. Hello, this is Natalie Levetri, and I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Meredith Bach to the podcast. Meredith is an associate professor in the Department of Childhood Studies at Rutgers University, Camden. She is the author of Playful Visions, Optical Toys, and the Emergence of Children's Media Culture. Her research explores children's toys, film, and media from the 19th century to the present. Today, we'll be exploring the world of optical toys. Hello, Meredith, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me. Meredith, to get us started, can you introduce our listeners to this category of optical toys and maybe describe one of the more popular toys for us? Sure. The term optical toy refers to a category of devices, most of which were developed during the 19th century, that explored different facets of human vision. Most of them exploited our eyes' ability to be tricked or deceived in various ways. So many of these devices played around with moving images. Uh, The zoetrope, for example, was the device that you spun and looked through slots and you saw a series of still pictures become animated before your eyes. The stereoscope was a device that used lenses to simulate three-dimensional vision from two flat pictures. The thaumatrope was a two-sided card with an image on each side, for example, a bird in a cage. And if you spun it rapidly, you would see the bird appear in the cage. So all of these toys were designed to demonstrate ways that our eyes could be tricked in sort of playful contexts. Hmm. Interesting. I'm wondering about the popularity of optical toys during the 19th century. Were optical toys made and marketed solely for children? Many of these toys emerged from scientific contexts, so vision researchers developed them as shorthand ways of demonstrating some of the phenomena they were thinking of, but they very quickly sort of moved into being marketed toward family audiences, so you would see them frequently sold as parlor amusements, uh, games that families could experience together in the evening hours or in the winter hours and play together. And from there, they also were very widely disseminated as sets of instructions for young people to make them themselves or as DIY templates that they could cut out and assemble. And so the movement into primarily juvenile markets sort of stemmed from initially being sold to families, I think. Hmm. So for children who wanted to make their own toys, how would they find the information that they needed? Where would these instructions be located? Instructions for making optical toys were disseminated in so many different ways. And in my research, I was really fascinated by the, the sort of range and ubiquity of optical knowledge. So one kind of popular output for these were children's periodicals that would print instructions or templates of various sorts. 
These kinds of instructions were often very commonly compiled in books of children's indoor amusements. So almost like encyclopedia-like volumes that would be gifted to children to sort of occupy them during the afternoon hours or during school vacations. But you also frequently saw them being disseminated in advertising. So hat boxes might be sold with zoetrope templates inside or trade cards. Victorian trade cards might have optical illusions in them. They might have strings on them and actually be a thaumatrope that you could spin and have a product advertised for you. So it was in a lot of different contexts that kids would have come into contact with these from formal instructional materials to just the stuff of everyday life and consumer culture. Right. So when we think of the Victorian era, clearly defined boundaries between class and gender often come to mind. So I noticed just in my own research that many of the instructional guides seemed aimed at boys published in periodicals, like you were saying, like the boys own paper, while the crafty and more detail oriented nature of these projects calls to mind skills that we often associate with the education and hobbies of girls, such as needlework. Do you have any thoughts on how gender featured in the history of optical toys? The gender question is a really interesting one, because I think in a lot of ways, these toys transcended gender in the sense that they were included in publications for both boys and girls, uh, as well as publications for children overall. What you'll find is the same block of text describing, for example, how to make a zoetrope or how to make a thaumatrope appearing in, you know, the boy's own book or a treasury of girls pastimes. And I don't know if it was necessarily imagined that these were gender neutral kinds of pastimes, or if it was simply a a matter of recycling content. Hmm. In other words, I don't know how strategic it was or how much people were really thinking about the gender divisions. But I think in either case, making these things really did require a lot of manual dexterity a lot of trial and error and sort of experimentation. And so I think it is striking that they straddle these categories of science and craft in that way. That might account for sort of why we see them just reproduced in lots of different kinds of publications, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you mention the dexterity and hands-on making and use of these toys, I'm reminded of children's formal education. Are there connections between the use of these objects and formal education? I'm thinking here of object lessons. It's a really great question. And in my research, I really didn't come across a lot of examples of optical toys being used in schools, for instance. And it might have been the kinds of conversations I was interested in tracing at this time or the kinds of anxiety surrounding childhood that I was interested in exploring. But what I found was that Devices like the zoetrope or the thaumatrope were much more likely to be incorporated into children's informal learning. So during the after school hours or during school vacations, for example, is when you would see kids kind of making these or playing with them or engaging with them. I think one exception to this that I found in my research was the use of stereoscope in schools. And the stereoscope this device that would sort of unite two flat pictures into an illusion of a three-dimensional image was very much employed in educational settings as a sort of analog to object lessons. And so, in fact, stereoscopic imagery was sometimes substituted for the object itself. And by virtue of its depth, 
educators believed that it sort of um, achieved the same kind of quality that an object lesson would bring, even though it was a virtual image as opposed to a sort of hands-on tactile experience. So for, for that reason, I think a lot of people refer to the stereoscope as like 19th century virtual reality because it, it has that same kind of quality to it. <laughs> right. Thinking back towards the material aspects of these optical toys, we haven't really discussed what materials were used when making these toys and maybe how those materials can tell us about the daily lives of Victorians. And this may take us back to a class distinction as well, but I'll let you offer any comments on that. Sure. Uh, materials varied pretty widely. If one were to purchase a pre-made, professionally made optical toy at an optician's shop or um, through a toy distributor, for example, it would likely be made of fine wood. It might have a turned wood base. It might have a turning drum made of tin or some other kind of metal and be refined like that. But I think what's so fascinating about optical toys is that the format is adaptable to so many different kinds of materials. So you would see, for example, price lists that would describe like a large scale zoetrope that was, you know, had quite fine materials and then a smaller scale one that was available with cheaper materials at a cheaper price. And then it would go all the way down to, you know, instructions for making one out of pasteboard, out of paper, out of cardboard, using, uh, I guess, inks and paints of various sorts. And so this was a practice of moving image consumption and moving image making that still depended on a degree of accessibility to particular materials. But I think the sort of class address there was a little bit broader than we might think. So, you know, the pre-made versions were quite costly and quite ornate, but you also had ones that you could pick up a penny template, for example, customize it to your liking. So there was a lot of variety with materials. Great. So when I'm thinking of 19th century paper crafts, I'm thinking of scrapbooks and Valentine cards. And I know that some of these items are still around in museums today. Is this the case with optical toys? Have they survived from the 19th century? It's a great question. I think in my research, I've come across many commercially made optical toys. So again, these finer versions made of wood or metal. And also, I've come across many sets of thaumatropes, which are, you know, pasteboard, cardboard, and string. But I haven't come across a lot of homemade versions, which is a bummer. I think it would be really exciting to see child-made crafts of this nature. And I don't know really what might account for that absence in the archive. I think because these things were so fundamentally tactile, there's the possibility that in use, they kind of got used up. They sort of fell apart as they were spun or manipulated or handled over the years. I think another facet to it has to do with their difficulty to be categorized. So in many of the museum and library collections where I've worked, you find these things listed under different names. You find them listed as ephemera, you find them listed as juvenilia, and it really kind of shifts around. Um, you find them listed as elements in the history of cinema or as elements in the history of childhood, and it's kind of all over the place. And so part of me wonders whether homemade versions of these things kind of got lost in the shuffle for categorization purposes. I know there are some homemade versions out there. There's a set made by someone called Mary Alsop that's in the collection of the late Richard Balzer, which I believe is housed in Los Angeles now. 
But I think missing from the conversation is an opportunity to see some of these these handmade versions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's unfortunate. It would be neat. Um, I noticed that when I was looking at different templates from the 19th century, there was sort of a standard type of imagery that would be used within these. Can you kind of describe maybe some of the more common images that would be used on these templates, or was it more broad and really uh, user-dependent? That's a really good question. I think the imagery did vary. You see themes, for example, like uh, turning mechanical images, so spinning gears, spinning wheels. Certainly the movement of animals was a prominent theme. Horses galloping or trotting, you know, people walking things like that. You do tend to see kind of recurring motifs with the thaumatrope, for example, the most famous prototypical thaumatrope motif is the bird and the cage that unite when you spin the image. But you would also see a horse and a rider or a vase and some flowers. And with the thaumatrope in particular, a lot of the motifs had political connotations as well. So there might be jokes about particular political figures with wigs removed and things, and you would spin it and see the wig appear on the person's head and things like that. And so they alluded to specific figures or sort of political debates at the time that might have been recognizable, which is which is sort of interesting that they were kind of plays on words. Thaumatropes also commonly featured phrases that could be united when spun. So flirtatious messages about people courting one another that you would only be able to see if you spun it around, something like that. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. And when you say that, when you're courting, would these be made as gifts sometimes for people then? Well, I've wondered about that. And I think I've come across a few examples uh, of instructions for thaumatrope making to sort of prompt a man to propose to a woman. So if a woman is sort of waiting for the proposal, she might fashion a thaumatrope that says, ask Papa, um, to sort of spur her suitor along. And I've also done a little bit of research into 19th century valentines, and I wonder if there isn't a connection between traditions of making puzzle valentines and something like flirtation thaumatropes to playfully express one's affections in sort of coded ways. Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I want to take us back to a little bit earlier. You mentioned vision and the ability to be deceived. I was wondering if you could maybe explain that in further detail. Was there an anxiety during this time about sight and about what the eye was seeing and what wasn't there? Absolutely. So during the 19th century, one element of human vision that became popularized in sort of scientific communities was this theory then known as persistence of vision. And it was this idea that if the retina is exposed to an image and then that image is removed, it remains on the retina for a fraction of a second afterwards. And so the moving image technology that we later came to understand as cinema is based on that same kind of perceptual principle that if our eye is bombarded by a series of images and each image looks a little bit different from the one before it and the one after it our brains will sort of assemble them into a fluid motion sequence. And so this was the sort of perceptual principle behind the operation of the zoetrope or another optical toy called the phenakistoscope, which was a round wheel with slots cut into it and images drawn along the slots. It's the same principle that makes, for example, a flipbook work. Right, right. You know, this principle of persistence of vision revealed that the eye could be tricked, that the eye was vulnerable to deception. 
And so much of my research has been concerned with thinking about what anxieties that would have prompted for people responsible for raising children, so parents, educators, and things like that. And what I found is that a lot of optical toys were sort of used in this broader cultural practice of what we might today call visual literacy to try to explain to kids how their eyes worked, how their eyes were subject to deception and therefore needed to sort of be educated and that they needed to practice this skill to avoid being swindled by a con man, to avoid political manipulation, to avoid all sorts of social ills. Optical toys are are really interesting because they're still around today in a lot of elements of children's culture. Today, you see optical toys continue to be marketed. But today, rather than sort of teaching visual literacy skills, they're typically framed as STEM toys. And the idea is that by constructing these toys and sort of seeing how they work, children can acquire STEM skills, engage in STEM-based thinking. And so I find that studying children's media culture of the past is really fascinating because it shows ways in which our anxieties or our aspirations about kids recur in different ways. And in some instances, it's even the same toys or the same forms of media are being deployed to try to address these concerns. They're a lot of fun to to look at and to research and to play with, really. Yeah, for sure. I have I had a little bit of experience making my own. Nothing with wood, more paper, but <laughs> but they were interesting and it is neat. I think the novelty doesn't wear off when you see something that you've created animate itself. <laughs> Absolutely. Meredith, thank you for sharing your knowledge of 19th century optical toys with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, my name is Anne Hung, and today I am joined by Dr. Catherine Golden. Hi, um, my name is Catherine Golden. I'm an English professor and the Tisch Chair in Arts and Letters at Skidmore College. I teach the long 19th century Victorian material culture, illustration, and Jane Austen. I'm pleased to be with you here today. The Penny Black, the first postage stamp, has been described as a curious object. Here on this podcast, we are, of course, very interested in curious objects and the stories they tell. And so I was wondering if you could provide a bit of background on this object and the effect it had on Victorian letter writing. Yes, uh, the uh, the way it was described is very curious. Roland Hill, who was the founder of the Penny Post and of the postage stamp, described it as a bit of paper just large enough to bear the stamp and covered at the back with a glutinous wash, which the bringer might, by applying a little moisture, attach to the back of the letter. So in 1840, there is this incredible measure, which is called the penny post. And Victoria takes the throne in 1837. And one of the first things she does when she takes the throne is to look at the situation and appoint a committee to look at creating affordable postage. Because prior to 1840, post is collect on delivery. So today we prepay, but that was not the case. That was considered a social slur. So the letter would arrive to you. If I wrote to you, and you would have to pay to accept it. And therefore, prior to the Penny Post, letters were a luxury for the wealthy. And what the goal was to make it a civic opportunity, a right for all to be able to have communication. So prior to the Penny Post, it's charged by the number of miles traveled, the weight, and the number of sheets. 
And with this measure, anything going anywhere in the UK for up to half ounce, no matter how many sheets, was only a penny. It's amazing how impactful this little object was. Could you tell us a bit about the Penny Black's design? For the treasury competition, there was a competition to to get how do we design this stamp, this curious object. And there were 2,600 entries. Only 49 of them were for stamps. And Roland Hill didn't like any of them. So instead, he reached out to Henry Corbeau, who was a well-known miniaturist, and he decided to put the Queen's head, a portrait of Victoria, on the postage stamp. And William Wyon, who was a leading engraver, he had created a city medal in 1837 to commemorate Victoria's 18th birthday and her first visit when she took the throne to London. So Corbeau then made a drawing based on the Wyon engraving, which Wyon then engraved. And so that became... Uh, the basis. And her portrait on the English stamp remains the same throughout her reign. She remained this eternally young monarch. I wonder what effects that had on public perceptions of her throughout the 19th century. That's a, that's a really, you know, good point. And I did an article some years back that I still have fun thinking of, where I sort of view the Queen's unchanging head uh, akin to Dorian Gray. Uh, the infamous portrait where, you know, Dorian becomes totally corrupted and he looks beautiful and youthful on his portrait. And we have to realize all the changes. That uh, drawing was based on a drawing of Victoria at age 18, which some people say is even younger because Wyan had been engraving her even younger. And here she becomes, you know, a bride. She becomes a mother. She has nine children. She's always worrying about her weight. And she, she becomes a widow and becomes increasingly unpopular. And England rears its ugly head with imperialism and all the negative wars that are going on. And still, we have this youthful-looking image of the queen, an enduring symbol from 1840 to 1901 when she dies. So it's, it's interesting that it's an unchanging face, but the colonies age her. And it's interesting that Canada is one that does. Initially, in 1867, they have a, an image that looks very much like the young queen. But as the years go by, I have a, a collection of stamps, some in the 1890s, that show a very unflattering portrait of Victoria and really make her look old. And I like to argue that it was a way in which the colonial holdings could separate themselves from England by um, sort of asserting their frustration with her heady power by changing her head. (laughs) (laughs) That's fascinating. While her image remains unchanged, communications were revolutionized in the period. Could you speak to the shifts in letter writing practices before and after 1840? Absolutely. I'd like to share some of the strategies that Victorians did to evade high postal charges. So as we've said, that post was very expensive. And the sad thing was that sometimes people couldn't accept a death notice and they didn't know who had passed away. Or if you left your hometown and moved somewhere else, you would risk never communicating with people again. So because of that, there was a lot of agitation. And this is why Queen Victoria immediately looked into this situation. But Victorians were good at doing ruses There's a famous story of Samuel Taylor Coleridge in 1822 taking a 
tour of the Lake District. And he was off and didn't have a lot of money, but he was doing this walking tour. And he overhears an older woman, the postman, shows her a letter. She looks at it. She looks at it again different ways and says, I'm sorry, I can't accept it, and hands it back to him. Coleridge is so concerned, he runs back and says, here's a shilling. Shilling is 12 pennies. This is a lot of money to someone in 1822. Here, now you can accept the letter. And she says to him, I don't need to accept the letter. It's blank. It's a system my son and I have. He's done a few markings on the outside of the letter to signal to me that he's okay. And so, so that was one way that people communicated by sending blank letters that then were refused. Then when mail is suddenly affordable, a lot of good things come about and a lot of bad things come about. Junk mail and slander, blackmail, people can communicate with people anonymously. There are a lot of good things that happened. For example, there's more letters home, there's more communication between families, there's still agitation for affordable air post, and that doesn't happen until 1874. But England is the first to have the stamp, and the stamp, as I said, was based on Queen Victoria's visage. And you'll notice in UK that they don't have nation on the stamp, whereas other countries do. And the reason they don't is that they were the first, so they didn't have to put UK on. And to this day, they don't have UK on it. They just have the cost. They just say one penny. You know, and the nation is signified through the queen's head. It's interesting to consider stamps in this way as symbols of nation rather than just tools for sending letters. Could you say a bit more on the cultural significance of stamps? Um, We might forget that stamps are government controlled and government sanctioned. And stamps different than the coinage are international in use so that Queen Victoria's visage was not only this this is an age before photography this this is how people knew the queen through this young image on the stamp and I started to think well why was it that they never aged her and I think it was a political ploy in part because it became a symbol of unwavering nation that when Victoria took the throne, there was this burst of optimism because her wicked uncles, George IV and William IV, were diseased and wild living. And she brought the sense of morality and virtue and family and children. And she was this matriarch. And so by keeping this image all the way through, for many, many British, it was a source of national pride. But if you do think about postage stamps in Canada, in the U.S., in the U.K., Stamps, again, are government-controlled and propaganda. So what goes on the stamp is how that government wants us to think about our country. So what causes, what um, leaders, what holidays, what famous artists, what we put on the stamp is still a way of controlling how we want others and our own country to view us. Handwritten letters seem almost obsolete today, but I'd love to hear your opinion on this practice that was so central in the 19th century. Think that letters, they weren't just um, a way to communicate because they were written by hand and there was this sense that you were connecting physically 
with the person through the post. And just the sight of a familiar handwriting from someone who's off at war gets a letter from home. And just the sight of that handwriting was a way of connecting and touching. And there was something very intimate about the post that I sort of argue to keep writing letters today. And I hope that those people who are listening might handwrite a letter with a dip pen and ink and fold that letter and seal it. And I have brought that practice into my classrooms and students have really enjoyed doing it. That's wonderful. I want to thank you on behalf of Crafting Communities for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. For more on Dr. Catherine Golden's research, The Penny Black, and Victorian letter writing, please visit craftingcommunities.net. Before I thank our guests and the student co-creators of this podcast, thank you for listening. Please stay in touch by following us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian and by visiting our website, craftingcommunities.net. Thank you to guests Patrick Leary, Catherine Golden, and Meredith Bock. Thank you also to my co-creators, Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, and Natalie Lovetri. Thank you also to Lucy Von Schilling for her transcription work. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lenkwongan and Sanchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project, which is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening. <laughs>